Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. In this episode, we're pleased to have two guests with us, Teresa Loom, who's Managing Director at the Education Law Center, and Steve Morlino, who's a School Facilities Management Consultant. Ms. Loom is an attorney at the Education Law Center whose work is focused on school funding equity, safe and adequate school facilities, and accountability. Mr. Morlino has extensive experience and expertise in the area of school facilities, having overseen school facilities management for many years in large urban districts. They will discuss the New Jersey Supreme Court's Abbott's 7 decision, which ordered that funding be provided to support renovation and construction of high-quality school facilities in the Abbott districts and will reflect on the impact of this decision for generations of students. So I want to welcome to our podcast series on the right to a fair and efficient education in New Jersey. This particular episode I want to welcome uh, is on school facilities, the condition of our school buildings, uh, and the litigation over that, the court rulings over that, and um, the legislature and the governor's response to address that, which is an important but often overlooked aspect of um, of our public education systems, but not here in New Jersey. We've had a, quite a bit of activity on this, so I'm pleased to be joined with Teresa Loom, who's um, who's my colleague at the Education Law Center, managing director, and has worked extensively over the last numbers of years on making sure that the state follows through on its obligations on school building improvements, and also with Steve Merlino, who's um, consulting now in his retirement, but has spent decades working on school facilities issues as a school facilities manager or the director, whatever title he's had. Um, he's been with the Newark school, Public Schools for many years, Patterson Public Schools as well. Uh, and I think perhaps we'll find out, I think some other districts too, but I wanna welcome Teresa and Steve to this podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, David. Great. Um, so let me start with you, Steve. Tell, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you've worked in districts quite a bit on um, school facilities planning, uh, trying to, on the ground, trying to work with uh, making sure that the buildings, um, the school buildings are safe and adequate for children. Talk a little bit about your experiences. Sure. Okay. I've, uh, first part of my career, I spent about 20 years uh, in New York City uh, in the healthcare environment running the uh, major facilities for one of the largest hospital groups in, in New York City. And when I left the hospital business, I went to work for the New York City Board of Education, where I was uh, in charge of facilities in Brooklyn and Staten Island. That was about 440 schools at the time, 13 different school 
districts within that uh, Staten Island and Brooklyn uh, community of schools. And then I left and went to Newark. Uh, having been born in Newark, I was lured back to Newark. And uh, I spent uh, about 16 years with the Newark schools uh, running their facilities operation uh, from the get-go where the facilities program first started under the Economic Development Authority and the School Construction Corporation and the School Development Authority. Uh, so I was involved with that. I then left Newark and went to Patterson, spent five years in Patterson as their Executive Director of Facilities, and then ultimately was lured back to Newark and came back to Newark uh, for the last two years. And since then, I've retired, but uh, still am teaching for ASBO and for Rutgers University. So I still have my hand in it and I see what's going on uh, in the um, school facilities arena and uh, what's not going on uh, also. So that's basically where I'm coming from. Great, and uh, same for you, Teresa. Talk a little bit about your involvement in um, at ELC and, in, uh, and particularly on the issue of school construction, school facilities improvements. Sure. So I have been at ELC, it seems hard to believe, but since uh, 2000, I guess, at this point, it's been 21 years. Um, I went to law school a little bit later, so I actually didn't become a lawyer until 2007. So I wasn't involved in a lot of the legal work until I finished law school and was admitted to the bar. So most of my Abbott work has been since 2008 when the new school funding formula was um, proposed. And then there was a very long um, remand hearing over it. And I really got involved with the facilities work probably six or seven years ago when we really started looking at how slowly the program was progressing and the fact that they were running out of money. And we decided to go back to the court uh, looking for an order for additional uh, construction funding. So what I want to start out with here is I want to take us back to, and Steve, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this. In the trial of the Abbott case, which was in the mid 80s, 86, 87, the evidence that was presented in that case was a comparison um, of what was available in wealthy suburban white, mostly white, predominantly white districts in New Jersey, alongside what children received or were made available to children in our cities in our, uh, with uh, very high concentrations of families in poverty and students in poverty, also largely Black and Latino. And part of that evidence, a lot of that evidence, a good deal of the evidence that went in was on building conditions into the judge back in the 80s. And I'm just going to read a little bit and ask you about this. So, and this is from the when, this, when the case um, went up to the Supreme Court for review after the trial judge issued a 600-page opinion detailing all of the deplorable conditions and horrible conditions of education in our cities as compared to our suburbs and found that the state's funding law, school funding law, was unconstitutional as applied to our cities. That decision went up for review by the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court kind of went over the main elements of the evidence in the trial and as I mentioned, one of them was around facilities. And um, at one point, the court goes through the evidence and they talk about many poor urban districts operate schools that due to their age and lack of maintenance are crumbling. These facilities do not provide an environment in which children can learn. Indeed, the safety of children in these schools is threatened. 
And then they go through several examples, such as uh, in Patterson in 1986, a gymnasium floor collapsed. Another school was sinking. East Orange had need for roof repair. Uh, schools without heating, ventilation, or air conditioning. And, and then there's this paragraph I want to read that they said. In an elementary school in Patterson, the children eat lunch in a small area in a boiler room in the basement. Remedial classes are taught in a former bathroom. In one Irvington school, children attend music classes in a storage room and remedial classes in converted closets. Another school in Irvington, a coal bin, was converted into a classroom. In one elementary school in East Orange, there is no cafeteria. The children eat lunch in shifts. In one school in Jersey City, built in 1900, the library is converted to a cloakroom. The nurse's office has no bathroom or waiting room. The lighting is inadequate. The bathrooms have no hot water. There's water damage inside the building and the heating system is inadequate. When you went to Newark from New York City, did you see many of these same conditions still now? I realize you went there probably in the, the late 90s, maybe a little bit later than the court was dealing with this, but talk a little bit about what you um, had to deal with when you first went to Newark to, uh, to, to oversee the, uh, the, the condition of the, you know, the, the, the maintenance and safety of school buildings in that district. Okay, so I went to Newark in 1999, and uh, three days after I arrived, uh, I was satcheled with a problem at the uh, Shabazz High School. Uh, it was very cold and they had no system in place to maintain some of the heating plants and the building froze over. And uh, I arrived at the uh, school three days after I started in Newark to see ice literally coming out of the walls of the school uh, and creating icicles on the outside of the building. As a matter of fact, the, the news picked up the story and uh, we made the uh, New York City uh, news uh, broadcast uh, because the building froze over and people were complaining that uh, uh, they district should be reported to DIFUS because they were endangering children. Uh, long story short, uh, it took me three days to bring equipment and people in to thaw the building out and get the heating plant repaired and back online. Uh, and that was my start there and uh, my indoctrination to Newark. And when I traveled around the district, I realized that we had over 26 schools that were over 100 years old at the time. Uh, a lot of them were in very seriously poor condition because of deferred maintenance over the years for various reasons, uh, some being not enough money, some being prior issues with uh, unscathy people being involved and in, in creating uh, uh, conditions that were unacceptable. Uh, we started on a program to try and bring these buildings back into compliance. Uh, and at the time, that was the first year that the economic development uh, authority got involved and they sent a survey team around and I went with the survey team to all the schools in the district and I really got an eyesight as to what was going on in the district, uh, having looked at firsthand every one of the schools. And there were some conditions that I just shook my head and said I would never send my child to one of these schools, therefore why are they in this condition for other kids. Uh, so that started to open my eyes as to what we were dealing with. And, and having come from New York City, I dealt with schools in Bed-Stuy and Brownsville, and they were nowhere near the conditions I found in Newark uh, at the time. So there was a serious need to do a lot of repair work. 
lots of money. Some of the schools I looked at uh, should be taken offline. And if you look at the historical data where we had the long range facilities plan, uh, which is done every five years for three of those cycles, meaning over a 15 year period, three different commissioners of education approved the plan that called for the replacement of 40 school buildings, not repairs and renovations, total replacement. Uh, and 39 others were supposed to get major renovations and rehab. Um, to this day, that has not been accomplished. So there's still a lot of work to be done in these school districts. Patterson, the same thing. When I arrived there uh, in 2014, I observed a lot of conditions that were quite frankly deplorable. Uh, a lot of work and a lot of money needs to be spent on some of these schools. And again, some of them are so old, they need to be taken offline and uh, replaced with new buildings. How do these conditions, uh, I know you're talking about buildings that um, are you know, quite old and in need of, and threatening to the health, basically to the health and safety of the students and the staff that work in them and, and parents that come into the school building. How, how did these conditions affect sort of the ability of uh, teachers and principals and the, the educational staff to deliver an education to kids was, you know, the court in, in uh, the Abbott case talked about the lack of labs, the lack of a space for proper space for health and physical education, so forth and so on. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And how, did it how did it affect the opportunity for kids to learn? Well, again, when you have poor lighting conditions, that certainly impacts a student's ability to learn. Uh, you have heating problems in the winter. You have uh, uh, heat stress problems in the summer because of lack of proper HVAC systems. Uh, boilers that were constantly breaking down. I had seven schools at one time in Newark that had boilers mounted in the parking lot as temporary boilers. Uh, one of them lasted seven years. That's how long it took the state to come in and replace the boiler plant. Uh, so we had to maintain a boiler outside the building for seven years, and that has its own complications. Uh, it requires a lot more labor to maintain that system, keep it from freezing over. Uh, it had portable uh, oil tanks involved, and several times we had trouble getting oil delivered, and the plant went offline, and consequently the pipes froze, and so we had issues with that. Um, in also, where you have roof leaks, and we had numerous roof leaks in the district, and you get this water infiltration into the building, both through the roof and through the windows, which were poorly uh, uh, maintained over the years, and through the brickwork. You actually had issues where uh, through thaw cycles, uh, you know, when you have this freeze-thaw cycle, wet bricks tend to just heave. And they open up and water continues to come in and it gets worse and worse each freeze-thaw cycle. So as you go through freezing temperatures and then defrosting the, the brick, uh, you run in and it escalates this problem. So, uh, and that causes a problem with lead paint, that causes a problem with asbestos, and that causes a problem with mold. Uh, all of these things are exacerbated by the fact that you have constant water infiltration into the building. So when students are sitting in a classroom, and water's literally leaking on them, or lead paint is flaking off the ceiling and coming down and almost raining on them, uh, or asbestos particles are a problem. Uh, all of these things certainly inhibit the student from learning because they're trying to stay out of the way of water dripping on them, or they're trying to stay warm in the classroom, or they're trying to cool off in the classroom. And uh, the teacher is also having the same experience. So it's a very difficult situation 
when when you put students in a less than desirable facility. And I and I think that um, we're, I don't know if you were there at the time, but as I recall, Newark a number of Newark public schools also had a problem with lead infiltration in the water. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, when I first got there, about a year after I got there. It came to light that there was uh, a lead water issue, so we started testing water. Uh, at the time, the state said you tested water every six years, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, they've now changed it to three years, which is still ridiculous. Uh, but we started testing annually, and we found we needed to install lead reduction filters. And uh, I believe at one time we had almost 10,000 lead reduction filters installed in the district. Um, and we constantly tested. Uh, and we found over the years that, uh, you know, maintenance was a problem with some of these filters, getting them changed uh, on a regular basis, buying the lead filters became an issue at several points in time due to budget constraints. Uh, so as much as we were trying to maintain the lead levels below the standard uh, that was established within the guidelines, uh, you still had this problem going on. And, and uh, this is a nationwide problem. It's, it's unfortunate, but there's a lot of old infrastructure out there. And this problem is all over the nation. As we saw in Detroit uh, and various other places, it came to light that uh, lead in the water was certainly a, a condition that exists in a lot of school buildings in this country. What about overcrowding? Was that, a, was that an issue that you had to deal with? And I know Patterson has had that problem. Absolutely, that's a problem. And, you know, these districts, uh, several uh, buildings had to be leased uh, to give us additional uh, seats in, in the school district. So we had to go out and lease buildings. A lot of times we're releasing former parochial schools that had been shut down. And after a while, it became almost comical that they would love us leasing one of their buildings because we went in and had to do a lot of major work to put our students into the building to bring it up to par just to accept our students. So not only were we paying sometimes 80, 90, $100,000 a month to rent the facility, we had to go in and put a roof on the building rather than put the roof on our own building that we owned, we had to defer funds to put roofs on other buildings. Then we had to bring the infrastructure up to, to speed. Sometimes the fire alarms had to be upgraded. Uh, the boiler plant had to be upgraded. Uh, various things like that ate up a lot of the maintenance budget that was earmarked for the district schools uh, for us to provide uh, enough classroom space and seats for students who just, there was no room in the district. So Steve, it's fair to say that a lot of the conditions, I've some of the, I, I read some, a little bit of the excerpts from the Supreme Court's opinion in 1990 about building conditions in the urban districts. And I guess it's fair to say that when you arrived in Newark in 1999 and continued to work in the district and on to Patterson, a lot of these conditions persisted when you were there. So. Um, I do want to ask you, and, and then Teresa, you can weigh in on this. What's the problem in terms of the district's ability? Now, obviously, you know, in the suburbs, the court also talked about the amazing facilities that, that uh, were in the, presented in the trial record in the more affluent suburbs, the tremendous buildings with, you know, all the spaces that kids would want, you know, technology and, and spaces for music and art and all of these things. And world languages and so forth. The backdrop of the court's uh, rulings on this is the, is the sort of fiscal condition, the, the, both the extent of the need that you've described and the deferred the age of the buildings and the deferred maintenance. And what was the problem with um, prior to the court rulings with the districts, these communities ability to kind of raise the sort of money locally 
to make sure that their buildings were properly maintained and brought up to modern standards. Can you talk a little bit about that, Steve? Sure. I, you know, you take a city like Newark, I don't think they had the tax rateables necessary to support the school district. They just didn't have the resources to invest. And again, when you're dealing with buildings that are over 100 years old, there's a lot more maintenance required. And, and it says a lot to the construction at the time 100 years ago. I mean, you know, when I tell people I had school that was built in 1848, and that was the year they installed lights in the White House, they say, wow. I says, yeah, gas lights were installed in the White House in 1848. And that's when this building was built. And they look at me like, you're kidding. I said, no, I wouldn't kid you. You can go through the school and still see the gas lines up on the ceiling where they had lights connected. Uh, they're still there. They still exist to this very day. They still exist there. Uh, so people don't quite understand the age of the building and you know where you had a number of schools that burned coal for years and years and years. As a matter of fact, when I was in New York City, we were the largest consumer of coal on the East Coast, the New York City Board of Education. And while I was there, we replaced 300 boiler plants, not boilers, but boiler plants, some of them consisting of three or four boilers. Uh, they seemed to find the money to do some of that stuff. Uh, when I got to Newark and I looked at some of the facilities and, and again, the deferred maintenance over the years, I, I don't think they had the resources over the years and they had some problems. I read the history of, you know, some people went to jail uh, because they were deferring funds for personal use and things like that. And how extensive that was and how much that impacted the situation, I don't know. But certainly the age of the buildings and the, the condition of the buildings just deteriorate year after year if they're not maintained. Again, a leaky roof only gets worse. It doesn't get better. Windows that allow water to come in only get worse. The brickwork with, with gaping, you could stick your hand in between several courses of brick, uh, only allows more and more water to infiltrate into the building. And as the water comes in the building, it causes a lot of the old plaster to delaminate off the wall. And that contains both lead paint and asbestos material. And that causes an environmental situation. So a lot of money is spent on removing environmental conditions such as lead paint and asbestos before you can even start some of this work. Uh, so one problem leads to another problem. The HVAC systems, again, they were designed years ago with gravity type systems where the windows were open and the air came into the building and fed through gravity systems up to the roof. They didn't even have powered fans up there. These were a gravity system. They were designed well and they worked well, but over the years, uh, they were dismantled for whatever reason. Some of the equipment was dismantled. They couldn't get parts for it. And so the systems fell by the wayside and now you had no ventilation in some of these buildings. I had schools that they didn't even have radiators. They were installed at the time where they used actual pipe as the manifold heating system. And instead of a radiator, they ran pipes horizontally across the, the windows of the room. And that's how the steam got into the, into the school. It went through a piping system, not even radiators as we know radiators to look like today. Um, and a lot of these systems were run wild. In other words, there was no control at the time the building was built. Fuel was so cheap that you just, you wanted to get the room cooler, you open the window in the winter and you'd go past schools, even in 1990 and sometimes some schools to this day, you could go by on a day where it was 15 degrees out and you see the windows open. Why are the windows open? Mainly they're open to let the heat out of the building because there's no control, there's no thermostats. The, the system runs wild. So uh, just before I left, we were looking to put an ESIP program in that was gonna address a lot of those things through an energy conservation program. 
But the bottom line is the, the infrastructure is extremely old in a lot of these school districts. Lisa, um, I want to turn to you a little bit about the situation. I mean, the court, the court in the Abbott ruling back in 1990 talked a lot about municipal overburden, which was the inability of the cities. I mean, Steve is talking about this with relationship to, to buildings, the inability of the cities, given their fiscal condition, to raise the kind of money off the property tax, the local property tax, to maintain, to properly maintain the building infrastructure for the children in the community. As I understand it, when the court issued its ruling in 1990, there was no state support for building, you know, major building improvements of any significance, and which meant that the uh, condition of the school buildings was left to local communities to fund, and largely based off the property tax, which you know, was a big factor in the deferred maintenance and the inability of to replace older buildings and so forth and so on. Can you talk a little bit about that, that whole fiscal issue? Yeah, I think, you know, Steve was right on when he said urban districts just lack the rateables. They can't, you know, raise the kind of local funds that wealthier districts uh, can. I would also add to that, though, the chronic underfunding from the state, you know, there was a school finance case brought before Abbott, you know, Robinson versus Cahill back in, I think, 1971, 72. And that was already aimed at decades of underfunding in urban school districts. And we don't actually get the school construction program that New Jersey now has until the year 2000. So, you know, you just have year after year after year of chronic underfunding from the state, a district that doesn't have the ability to raise local funds. And like Steve said, just deferred maintenance. I think def maintenance is one of those things that you can, as, as Steve said, it always gets worse, but it's one of those things that I think districts cut in the short term, which hurts them in the long term, but it may solve another you know, more immediate problem at the time. Uh, so it's just one problem compounded on another. And as I understand it, when the court was reviewing the record I mean, you were talking about underfunding, chronic underfunding. That's the sort of operational funding from year to year that schools get from the funding formula. But as, as I understand it, there wasn't any special funding program that the state had set up to help these poor districts deal with capital, because obviously a lot of the problems that Steve was talking about, which is buildings that really need to be just be replaced, and you need a new school, a more modern school, and you need major upgrades that cost, can cost tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that the state had no program to make that kind of money available. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, there wasn't anything until the year 2000. And that was really only after the Supreme Court weighed in in uh, Abbott 5 in 1998, basically ordering the state to fully fund uh, school construction needs both new construction, rehabilitation, health and safety issues to fund it 100% in this uh, select set of urban school districts. And that program didn't actually get off the ground until the year 2000. So it took a long time and a lot of effort from the court to get the state to do what it needed to do. Well, I should mention, and we talked about this on a prior, a prior episode with our good friend, Larry Lusberg, an attorney who's been involved in Abbott. We were talking about the Abbott II ruling, and he was pointing out that despite all of the 
findings that the court made that I was just reading about the deplorable condition of the school buildings in Abbott II, which is 1990, the court said that the state's obligation, thorough efficient obligation for thorough efficient education includes capital expenditures. And that obligation has not been fulfilled. The court said the lack is great, but they said, we don't really know what to do about this. We find the record insufficient to fashion a remedy concerning capital construction. And then they go on to talk about, we're not going to order anything to deal with this right now, but legislature, get your act together. You should do something about it. And that was what the court ruled in 1990. It says it's obviously a matter best suited for legislative treatment, but if squarely prevented to us with an adequate record, we would do something about it. Um, So in 1990, they actually, the court even punted, even though to the legislature, even though it was, it recognized that this was a serious problem. And that brings us to, I want to talk a little bit, Teresa, and and then uh, we can bring Steve back in on the school construction program itself. But that brings us to Abbott five, the ruling, as it's called, to 1998, when the court actually had given the legislature two times, two opportunities to come up with a new approach to funding, not just ongoing budgets every year, but also capital. And on capital, not doing, on school construction, not doing anything. And then in Abbott five, they put their foot down and appointed a special judge to look at the issue and figure out what to do since the legislature had refused to do anything about it. Can you talk a little bit about how that was handled in the Abbott five remand and kind of how the court sort of got to, what did the court do at that point? Well, I think you have to start maybe a little bit with Abbott four when, right, they declared the then current school funding formula unconstitutional and ordered the state to increase funding to urban school districts. And they remanded the case, basically ordering um, a special needs assessment that the state do a needs assessment of all of the supplemental extra programs that students in poor urban districts need and together with the facilities needs of plaintiffs. So that was a distinct part of their order uh, to the remand judge. Like you need to look at what the facilities conditions are and then what the state needs to do. And as part of that, you know, remand hearing, the state did come, you know, with program suggestions. Uh, I think they saw the writing on the wall that they were going to have to do this. So they did present a plan um, to empower what was then the Educational Finance Administration to issue bonds uh, and serve as the general construction manager to address the need for facilities. And during that remand hearing, there was also determination made that the state would need $2.8 billion to address the remaining need. And then the court adopted most of those recommendations uh, in Abbott 5. So that's where you get the school construction program. Right. So in Abbott 5 is a kind of watershed in the sense that the court, at least through this remand process, got the state to come do, do an assessment of the building conditions. I think that was what Steve was referring to in 1999. They had they, they sent around a consultants to go across the districts. And right, Steve, I think that's what that was about. And that all went back yes. to the court. Is that right, Steve? Yes, 1999, the Economic Development Authority sent a survey team and looked at all of the buildings uh, in, in the districts around the state. The urban districts around the state. And then the court also, I think, Teresa, isn't it true that the court, in addition to that, having gotten a needs assessment and gotten a, gotten a number, 2.8 billion, 
based on that assessment in terms of capital need in Newark and other urban districts. The court also did weigh in on the issue of the need for state support for capital, given the fact that the districts like Newark lacked, completely lacked the fiscal ability to do anything on their own. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, there's a quote from Abbott 5 that any funding formula that fails to cover the complete facilities costs basically won't comport with the state's constitutional mandate to provide a thorough and efficient education. So they tie adequate school facilities, you know, with the need to provide a thorough and efficient education. And they also direct the state to pay for 100% of those costs. It's a, it was a full, you know, the state was on the hook for all of it. And then the state actually had to clarify that order uh, a couple of years later when the Speaker of the Assembly went to the court and said, do you really mean we have to pay for all of it or can we have the districts chip in at least a little bit depending on what they can pay? And the court came back and said, nope, 100% is 100% and the state is required to fund all of the necessary remediation and construction costs. And I note that in that Abbott 5 decision too, I think we, you know, those of us who work in New Jersey on this problem kind of take it now, take it for granted. But back in 1998, when they issued that ruling, that the state had to come up with a financing plan to cover 100% of the school construction cost needs in the urban districts, how extraordinary that was. And also, and this is the court's words, the state's constitutional educational obligation includes the provision of adequate school facilities. So the court was you know, making it crystal clear now, on no uncertain terms, that the state's obligation to make sure that kids get a thorough and efficient education included the right to attend a school that was safe and adequate and, and met standards. Steve, I want to ask you about that. I mean, a state capital pro, you worked in New York, and I know you've probably talked to your colleagues who work on school facilities in other states. Pretty extraordinary for a court high court in a state to basically make it clear that adequate facilities are part of the kid's constitutional right, A, and B, that the state has an obligation to make sure that the resources are there to keep the buildings up to speed, and C, in this case, that the state in poor districts has an obligation to foot 100% of the bill. How, How unique is that? I think that's very unique. Uh, when I talk to uh, my counterparts in other parts of the country, you know, we belong to the Greater City Schools uh, uh, organization, and, and again, that was the the largest 100 schools across the nation. And we talked about some of these things. People were astounded to hear that uh, we we had to have a court order uh, in order to get the school buildings uh, somewhat uh, brought up to speed. And and again. Uh, you, you mentioned the cost. Uh, Nork was earmarked on the first round at $1.6 billion. And it, it was comical when I went to a conference or a seminar and there were other people there. I had some vendors follow me around. They thought I had $1.6 billion in my <laughs> pocket. Uh, you know, it was just un, unreal that people thought because that was talked about that the district actually had that money. Um, and I've never seen that kind of money uh, in, in any of the school districts I've worked at. New York City seemed to have a whole different approach to this. And, and they had a school construction authority. Um, and they built schools and maintained some of the schools for, for the, uh, the operation. But uh, when I came to New Jersey, I was astounded at the, the condition of the buildings and, and 
the fact that there were no resources. Uh, and you know, you mentioned the budget before, and one of the first things to go when, when budgets get tight is maintenance. Let's cut the maintenance division. And again, people have this mindset that, well, we can reduce maintenance costs and save money. Yeah, you could slide for a year or two, but that catches up with you after a while. And you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Uh, you're going to have to maintain these buildings and they only get worse with time. So you cut the staff, okay? They cut the maintenance staff. And in some cases, I mean, I'll use Patterson as an example. The, the maintenance staff over a couple of years was cut by a hundred people. Uh, you certainly, you know, can't maintain buildings with a hundred less people. Even if you said, well, half of the people didn't do anything, which wasn't true. But even if you said that, you're, you're reducing the maintenance level to the point where uh, systems just decay and fall apart. You don't do any preventative maintenance uh, and, and there's this ongoing deterioration of your facilities, which only gets worse and worse. And I remind people that, you know, in a lot of school districts, your school portfolio is your largest investment in the, in the community. Uh, that's your biggest asset is your school buildings in most communities. Uh, and, and people just don't realize that. And, you know, even the system we have today where voters vote on a referendum, are we going to spend some money to fix the school? I mean, think about that. If your roof was leaking at your house, uh, you know, you're going to call your family together and say, well, do we fix the roof? You don't make that kind of decision. You, you know you need to fix the roof, okay? And by hook or by crook, you fix the roof. Uh, you, don't, you don't hold the referendum and ask people who have no idea about the roof, what should we do with the roof? Okay, so I mean, some of the systems that we have in place are just not conducive to, to a thorough and efficient education. I want to get to the na the national scope of this problem a little bit later on, but I want to I want to it's a good segue uh, back to Teresa on this hundred percent this commit this essentially the court in 1998 telling the state you've done an assessment we have some indication of what the need is and what the cost is you now have to come up with a financing plan for these urban communities these poor urban communities. And since they don't have the fiscal capacity, it's got to be 100%. That's 1998, they issued that directive. What happened then? What occurred and how did the legislature respond? When did they respond and what did they do? So after confirming that the court actually meant 100%, <laughs> they did in fact come through with legislation in 2000, the Educational Facilities Construction and Financing Act, which, uh, made the New Jersey Economic Development Authority the responsible for financing, designing, and to constructing uh, all the school facilities projects in the Abbott districts. And they came up with a lot of money. Um, they authorized the state to borrow $6 billion to spend just in the Abbott, the 31 Abbott districts, and $2.5 billion for everybody else, sort of the regular operating districts, we call them. So this, the state really did respond and put this mechanism in place. You know, I think uh, Steve would have a lot to say about whether or not they really needed that mechanism or if the districts should have just been allowed to uh, manage these projects themselves. But for whatever reason, they decided they need this, needed an intermediary um, to actually manage this money and manage uh, the school construction projects. So the state, in effect, where did this eight point, uh, the six billion for the urban districts come from? Was it state bonds? Yes. So they, they're authorized the Economic Development Authority to bond up to $6 billion for uh, money to fund the facilities projects in the Abbott districts. 
My recollection is they formed a, what is it called? School Construction Corporation, I think initially named, uh, now named the Schools Development Authority. That came um, in 2002. They, oh, they changed the law, is that what they did? So they started with the um, EDA as the manager for the construction program, but that didn't really go well because EDA didn't do schools. So in 2002, you get the executive order creating the school construction corporation, which took over management from EDA. Although EDA then retained the ability to issue the bonds, but the day-to-day -day management of the program was switched over to the New Jersey Schools Construction Corporation. Steve, I wanna shift to that because I think that also unique was not just 100% financing, but the fact that the state would actually through this school construction corporation, now the schools development of Authority would actually do the construction itself in these 31 urban communities. Um, is that right? That, that's correct. So the Economic Development Authority, who had never built a school in their lives, did a survey of all the buildings. Uh, basically, they borrowed people from the Department of Education to help them do those surveys. So they went around and they got a good assessment of the facilities conditions. Uh, around the state. Then, you know, very little happened in between uh, creating the school construction corporation. So the, the, the EDA recognized that, well, we don't have the resources and they wanted to uh, create the resources within the EDA, but that didn't happen. So the SCC was formed. The idea was fairly good at the time that they would bring in a bunch of experts and hire people uh, to do this and oversee it. But then they became to the point where they wanted to build everything and design everything. And, and the, basically the districts were a second thought to this process. So uh, in a rod district, the district itself hires the architect, the engineer does design, does the educational specification and puts the, the building out to bid and then gets the bidder on board and builds a building. Um, in, in the case of the Abbott districts, you depended solely on the state's resources. Uh, and again, they were a brand new organization. They brought teams of people together that quite frankly had never built the school together. Uh, they brought these teams together and started designing schools and looking at, now in the case of Newark, there was property assessment needed. Uh, under the long range plan, we identified a number of locations that were available to build a school. And in the years I was there, I saw them design buildings, uh, literally spend several hundred thousand dollars and never put a brick on the site. And that happened several times. And it seemed to me from looking in from the outside that every time the government administration changed, uh, we had a whole new set of engineers and architects come to the table and had a different perspective on what needed to be done. And so... Uh, again, the, the districts had very little say in what was going to be built within their own school district. And as I recall, there was a whole argument, uh, as I remember, that was made in the legislature in, in various ways, I think in various subtle ways, but there was a kind of argument that was going around that since we're going to have to pay 100% of the building costs, we can't trust these local urban districts to do it themselves because they're corrupt or they're wasteful or they're inept or incompetent or whatever you might call it. So we, the state, are going to have to build school buildings in 31 different communities across the state. Steve, that was a seed of a lot of kind of problems, don't you think? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I keep going back to Newark. You know, in Newark, when I arrived there, we had 24 people in the Department of Design and Construction. Newark had built its own schools over the years, and they had a whole team of people in place, architects and engineers on staff that were designing and building and going out to bid to put school buildings in place. Uh, and they did build a number of schools with in-house uh, architecture and designs, et cetera, using outside resources where necessary. But the state came after us after I got there and, and tried very hard to dismantle that operation. And they kept telling me, well, no other district in the state has this kind of a department. And I said, no other district in the state had the number of school buildings and the age of the school buildings that Newark had to maintain and contend with. So you needed a team of people who could look at a building and come up with a project and a design and a, a, a program on how the means and methods necessary to repair some of these buildings or to come up with replacement schools. Uh, so there was certainly a need, even if the state took over the construction of new schools, you have multiple projects going on in a school district that size every day of the week. And you need people to oversee those projects and maintain them. And again, I know historically there were some problems, but those people were <laughs> put in jail in a number of cases. So I, I don't think that problem existed when I didn't when I got there. I didn't see any of that when I arrived. It had been cleaned out, if that's the term you want to use. And uh, most of the people that were there that I met and worked with were very dedicated to maintaining school buildings the way they needed to be maintained, just like in any other rod district. So, Teresa, I think the, the, the legislature in setting up this program to meet the, its constitutional obligation to ensure adequate facilities, um, I think Steve is alluding to this, actually set up two separate programs. One was the urban district program in which the state paid for 100% of the cost and did all the construction itself without the school districts being involved. And the other was all the rest of the districts that got partial grants for their construction programs, but could go ahead and continue to do the projects on their own. Is, is that a fair characterization of what happened? Yeah, that's right. There was 2.5 billion in the School Construction Act that was set aside for regular operating districts. And they had to apply the, you know, they couldn't use the money for just anything. And they did have to apply to the department and get their um, projects approved. But once they had the money and the state would provide up to 40% of a project cost, once they had the money, they could design the school or whatever it was they were building themselves. And the, this, this sort of uh, two tier program, I guess, or two separate program is, uh, exists to this day, right? I mean, that's, that's the way it's set up today. Is that right? That's right. SDA, the Abbott districts can manage some projects on their own. I forget what the dollar limit is. Steve might know, but I think it was maybe a half a million. It was $500,000. And then in some cases, it was expanded slightly above that, depending on the project and the state's confidence in you being able to deliver it. Right. But it certainly didn't allow them to build a school. It was really, you know, pretty minor projects for under a half a million. So... Teresa, um, tell us a little bit about what happened. So you have um, 8.6 billion, 6 billion for the urban districts, which the court had ordered the state to finance 100% of the construction costs. Legislature sets up the program, state's going to build the buildings itself. Governor, I think at that time, Jim McGreevy is elected governor back in 2002 and takes office 2003, I believe, or around that time. What happened during that period? Did, did anything get done? 
a lot did get done, although I think they were overly ambitious in the beginning and tried to do too much, and that became problematic. The uh, SCC was, you know, buying land and demolishing schools and, you know, displacing residents in different districts in anticipation of building schools or doing renovations and additions. And they didn't, they didn't plan it all the way through. So at a certain point, they started running out of money and it happened rel rel relatively quickly. And once they realized that they had to cut back on the projects they could do. So they had land and plans and designs in all kinds of different districts that they then couldn't actually fund a school to be built on. And there was also an inspector general's report of the SEC around 2005, finding some kind of waste, fraud and abuse issues. And, you know, the, and the money was just, just was coming to an end. But the six billion, David. Go ahead, Steve. Well, go ahead. So, so let's take the case of Westside High School in Newark. It was identified through a, a cost comparison that it was cheaper to tear the building down and build a new school. So they did a study and they determined you need a new school. They bought 60 private homes on adjacent property to the school, 60 private homes, several businesses. They bought them outright, moved the families, paid to replace or, or move the families to other locations. That being said, they designed the school building. They had public meetings. Dr. Janey was the superintendent at the time. We had public meetings. We got input from the, the uh, school community as to what their desire was to replace that school. The school construction corporation met with the parents and talked about what they were going to do. They even showed them plans and and design schematics and a new athletic field and all these things were done. To this day, there is no new school at that location after spending all that money buying all those homes, displacing all those families to other locations, you still don't have a school at that site. That's kind of symbolic of the what Teresa was talking about, the kind of chaos in the beginning of this program. Well, so what happened now? You got the six billion, they're running out of the six billion Obviously, I guess, um, talk a little bit about that, Teresa. Was that, an, obviously that didn't meet the need. There was still a lot more need. What, what, what um, did the legislature step up and put more money in and fix the program or, or how did this all kind of play out? Well, they, they never step up to fix the program without some, <laughs> some coaxing along the way. So that's when we got involved again, right? We went back to the court you know, recognizing that the money was running out. Uh, in 2005, I believe we went back um, asking the court to order the state to put more money into the construction uh, program. But the, the court that first go round uh, dismissed our motion, basically giving the state the opportunity to in fact come up with the money, which then they didn't do for the next year. So we ended up going back to the court uh, in 2007 and it was up until the very last second before oral argument in front of the Supreme Court that the state finally said, you know what, we'll do it. <laughs> we will come up with the money, we will work to come up with the money. Uh, and so we were, the court did not have to actually order them to do it. They volunteered at the very last second to, to put the money in. And in 2008, the legislature did pass another bond authorization for 3.9 billion, which included 2.9 billion for the Abbott districts 
and a billion uh, for regular operating districts. So it did end up in more money for the school construction program, but as always, it, it took some prodding. And um, I think uh, John Corzine was elected governor at that point too, I think, uh, mm -hmm. around this time and, and also enacted some major reforms to try to clean up the program and deal with some of the problems that Steve was talking about. Is that right? That's right. It, it transitioned from the New Jersey School Construction Corporation to the New Jersey Schools Development Authority. I think they were hoping sort of a branding name change would, you know, alter the reputation of the organization. And they put in a, in a whole host of new controls to try to prevent some of the you know, issues Steve was just talking about. One of the controls was to have a, a kind of capital plan, a statewide capital plan, so that the financing that they had would not just start a project and leave it high and dry because they run out of money, but actually identify a kind of set of priority projects and then have sufficient funding to actually undertake and complete them. Wasn't that a major change at that time? Yeah, I mean, because when the first round of money was running out, you know, as Steve mentioned, there were just all kinds of projects in the works that didn't have enough money for completion. So the first thing they had to do is take, take that massive list and narrow it down to, I think it was 59 projects that still needed you know, more money to complete. Um, but that shut out a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of projects at that point. So Steve, back to you. I mean, during this period, sort of you know, mid to late 2000s into, into 2010, 12, 13, you were in Newark. Some projects got done, didn't they? Were there some new schools built and some built, uh, buildings that were placed and some, some significant work actually got done, didn't it? Absolutely, David. There was a lot of work done. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to say there wasn't. There was a lot of work done. But let, let me give you another example. So we built a brand new First Avenue School in Newark. Beautiful building was built. The plan was to take the old First Avenue School offline because it had been determined that it was no longer educationally adequate and it needed to be taken offline. However, because of overcrowding and the lack of seats, the old First Avenue School is still online to this day. So you have a new First Avenue that was supposed to replace it. That building was supposed to be taken offline and demolished. It was never done because there's still a need for it. So along the way, we needed to keep maintaining the old First Avenue School and keep putting capital dollars into it to keep it online because there was a need for it. Same thing happened with the old Speedway School. We built a brand new Speedway School. Okay, beautiful school was built, although it was supposed to have recreation going over into Valesburg Park, but the state determined after the school was under construction that they couldn't afford to build the bridge over South Orange Avenue into the park, so they dismantled that part of it uh, and built the building with at, without adequate recreational space. But we also had to keep the old Speedway School online. It's still online to this day because, again, there was a need to house students. And this is some of the dilemma we had because, again, the plan called for 40 new schools. They were never constructed. I believe to this date there were eight of them constructed uh, out of that number. And that, again, that plan was reviewed and revised through. 15 years, every five years, the long range plan is resurrected and redone and three different education commissioners approved the plan, yet 
They have yet to build those buildings, again, due to lack of funding. Then there was a lot of work done by the SDA. I, I got to say that you had, after a while, they became more experienced in what they were doing. They got more professional. They had some very good people on board. Uh, they would come out and look at projects and say, wow, is there a need here? But again, they went back to the office and for whatever reason, funding wasn't available. So they couldn't implement what their own people said. There, there's certainly a need for and I, I take it that was, Steve, was that the case in Patterson too? Some work, some projects were done, and but, but a, a lot more that were identified as needed. The money just Absolutely. wasn't there. Almost identical, David. Almost identical that you, you again, did a facilities condition needs assessment. You looked at the facilities. You came up with a long-range plan. The plan was approved. But again, funding wasn't there. And I'll, I'll point out some of the problems in, in putting these plans out there. Let's take the case of Panther Academy in Patterson. So you built the brand new school, okay, beautiful school. It even had a, a planetarium in it. However, they didn't build a cafeteria. They didn't build a gymnasium. They didn't build an auditorium with it. Okay, so the kids had to go across the street, cross a major road, and thank God the community college was across the street and they worked out an arrangement where the kids would go over there to have lunch and gym. And that's how the school operates to this day. But Teresa, what about statewide, right? So um, you have more money coming in in 2008, 2007, 2008, you know, fast forward uh, over, over the course of the next, you know, decade or so. How much of the need, I guess, is the way I'll ask it, uh, in these 31 districts, was, uh, and I know you don't have, you know, it's uh, hard to kind of get a, an accurate picture, but give us an idea of the extent of, of the, the unmet need for school construction that was actually met, elementary schools, middle school, high schools, across these 31 communities and, and sort of what's remaining to do today? So I can tell you that uh, in the last annual report that the School Construction Corporation put out, the Schools Development Authority put out. They have built a total of 90 new schools, uh, 47 extensive additions, renovations, or rehab projects, um, and they've done 354 health and safety projects. So they've, they've done a lot, and that's just in the Abbott district. So they've done a lot of work. Um, you know, I don't think any of us want to say this, and none of this, I mean, all of this was needed. But in my looking at the, long, the most recent long range facilities plans submitted by the 31 SDA districts, the, the combined total of projects that had yet to be completed was over 300. I think it was like 350. So there is a tremendous amount of need that remains to be met because you know, as, as Steve's been saying, these schools are old and have had deferred maintenance for decades and they're, there's a need for whole school replacements, which, you know, these are large projects, but, you know, we just haven't had enough money to get them all done or even close to all done. So just to kind of sum up, you're basically saying that about 150 new, uh, 150 schools have either been renovated, I'm talking about major projects now, not just health and safety and maintenance projects, but the state has been able through this construction program over the course now of about two decades. We're about two decades in now, since 2002, 2003, when it got up and running, have been able to do about 150 schools, elementary, middle and high schools or K-8 schools 
in these 31 communities, but there's about 300, and did you say 350 major projects that are still remaining? That's right. As identified in the long range facilities plans, which as Steve pointed out, are approved by the Department of Education. Still got a long way to go. Is that a fair, uh, fair assessment? I think that is a very fair assessment. Okay, so what about the money? We the court talked about 2.8 billion in 1998. I guess that was that was <laughs> they could have only hoped it was only 2.8 billion, but it turned out that so in the Abbott and the urban districts, the state has invested six billion for that 150 schools, six billion, and then what was it? The next round that you talked about when the court was ready to order them to provide funding, and then they voluntarily came. It was about 2.9 billion, was it not? That's right. Okay, so uh, about $9 billion has been invested, made available in the urban districts. And Mike, is that a fair so far? Yep. Where are we now in terms of financing? We're out of money again, aren't we? We, we are, and we've been out of money actually for kind of a long time. I mean, no new projects have been added to the state's capital portfolio, which basically they move projects, you know, from the long list of projects that need to be done based on the long range facilities plans and an assessment done by the Department of Education. And they move the, a certain number of projects, a small number of projects to the capital portfolio each year. So those are the schools that then will, you know, move, move forward in the construction process. And no new schools have been added since 2014, because all of the money that's in the program has been either spent or committed to projects that are in the capital plan. And the SDA now is down to, I, I looked at their last um, biannual report, they're down to like six schools and that's it. I mean, one- Six schools that they're working on. That they they're working on. Yep. And, 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 and then what happens? Do they shut their, they close their doors and turn out the lights? I mean, I don't see what else they're, I mean, what else they're gonna do? I mean, uh, of course, Governor Murphy put $200 million into the FY22 budget. So I guess they can add another school or two to the list. But you know, the projects they have now are supposed to be done by 2025. If, and if they don't get more money, I don't see how they stay in business. So um, Teresa, uh, given that the Education Law Center, and you're, I think you're personally involved in this, um, has tried to get the state to, or the legislature and the governor, and I guess Governor Christie when he was in, and now Governor Murphy, come up with more money, and how's that going? <laughs> Not how's well. That <laughs> right. hey, yeah, how's can that I going interject? Down? Yeah. Sure. So, so in 2013, I believe it was, or 2012, uh, we were asked to do a survey for the PEPP program, the Potential Emergent Projects Program, and so they surveyed the 31 districts and asked, "What what are your needs for emergent work?" Okay, this is work that had to be done, uh, a, a whole variety of things from fire alarms that failed to, to roofs that were falling and leaking and all these kinds of things. And so we came up with this list of potential emergent projects. Uh, and then they told us, well, we were going to earmark $100 million for it. In the case of Newark, our list was over a quarter million dollars by itself. And again, this was emergent work. This wasn't to replace a school. This wasn't a renovation. This was work to keep systems online and functioning. Uh, and if you do the math, they told us, well, that money was for 31 districts. So $100 million divided by 31 is not a lot of money for any districts. Uh, in Newark, you're talking a paint job here and there. 
So, I mean, this is part of the problem is we kept making lists after lists and through no fault of the, the SDA, I mean, they just didn't have funding to do this work. So uh, again, the needs are there, uh, the, the knowledge is there, what's needed, but it just hasn't been funded. So uh, Teresa, that's a violation of the, strikes me as a violation of the Supreme Court's order that the state fully fund 100% of all the, all, not just some, but all of the capital improvements that are needed, both major projects, emergent projects that Steve was just talking about. As the lawyers for the school children in the Abbott case, what's, what's Education Law Center done about that? So we went back to the Supreme Court in November of 2019. We filed a motion seeking an order from the court to order the state to put more money into the school construction program. That motion was uh, dismissed because the court you know, always likes to give the state an opportunity uh, within that budget year to come up with more funding, you know, essentially telling the state, you know, we expect you to, and we'll give you this opportunity to do it. Uh, but then, you know, fiscal year 2021 came around and they'd put no more money into the program. There was no suggestion that there would be another bond authorization. So we renewed our motion um, just this last January, and that's where things stand now. We're we're finally done with all of the briefing and you know we're waiting on a report from a remand judge but and hopefully the court will intervene and get the state to put more money into the program and and as i understand what's going on in front of the court now this gets to steve's point about the resistance to at the legislature and in the executive branch and the governor and to to to, to step up and meet their obligations here and the need for the court to become involved. Isn't there a big fight right as we speak? Just trying to get the state to actually, they've identified a whole group, a new group of projects. I think it's 20, maybe 22, 23, could be upwards of 25 or 26 projects that need to be done, some in Newark and Patterson and other districts across the state. And yet they've been reluctant to even give the court a cost estimate of what it's going to take. Isn't that the issue now that the court's sort of grappling with? Yes, this, the court asked the state to come up with a cost estimate for all of the projects that are in the, the 2020, basically the strategic plan, the sort of the next tranche of projects that the Schools Development Authority have determined are priority and should be built. And so the court asked the state for an estimate of what that would cost. And the state came back with, um, I guess I would call it a lowball answer of just under $2 billion, but admitting in the brief that they filed that they didn't include a lot of costs, that it was a rough estimate. And it was so it was very unclear as to what the real cost would be. So the Supreme Court has now remanded the case to a now retired judge, basically over the issue of determining what the cost will be. Like the judge wants to know from this, the court wants to know from the state, what are the real costs? If you can't tell us, tell us why you don't know and when you will know. And so he's trying to sort out that issue right now, which yeah. at least at the moment isn't going particularly well. What a mess. Um, Steve, I wanna, I wanna, uh, and I know one of the issues before the court, and I wanna get you to comment on this is the issue you brought it up since you brought it up, emergent repairs. And I, I think before the court also is the question of what's the overall current need for repairs to things like heating systems, cooling systems, ventilation, so forth and so on. And um, 
the court is sort of pushing the state also to come up with some cost estimates for that. And I want to ask you about how all of that, that you were talking about Newark's need in 2014 as being a quarter of a, I think it was a quarter of a, mil, a, a billion dollars, wasn't, wasn't it? Something like that. So the need was there and then the pandemic hit. So tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted this whole question of making sure that these buildings are health and the health and safety of these buildings and the urgency of getting funding uh, to deal with it. Well, again, I think at the end of the day, we found out that the biggest issue with the coronavirus is ventilation. It travels through the air. And again, we had schools that had either no circulating ventilation system functioning and then we have run the gamut of you have some schools that have partial systems and some schools that have half systems and some schools that are fully conditioned, except they were designed, most of them during the energy crunch. And the cubic feet per minute per occupant of the building is lower than you would design a building today. And the filtration systems that you would put in a building today are non-existent in those buildings. Uh, so there's a need and there was a need for us to go out, and, and I'll use the example in Newark, that's where I was when most of this started, was you needed, uh, we put desk shields on every desk so the students had a buffer between them and the student in front of them. We went to the six foot separation of space, which limited the number of seats that were available. We bought uh, air purification systems for every classroom because we couldn't afford to do the whole school because Again, when you talk about retrofitting the school with a new HVAC system, there's a number of environmental concerns that come into play. And you know, if you're gonna break walls and install ductwork and various systems, you gotta deal with lead and asbestos. And then there's the mold issue and all of these things are compounding what's needed to bring the school up to today's safety levels as far as ventilation. We spent a fortune on cleaning equipment modern uh, you know, ultrasonic cleaning equipment and, and uh, ultrasonic sprayers and various other disinfecting means to do the schools properly, to sanitize them properly. Uh, we had to buy foot sanitizers for every school as the students came in. They went through a process where their, their footwear was, was basically scrubbed and temperatures were taken and a checklist was done and they went into the building and, and we had various things that were done. Tents had to be installed or canopies had to be installed where the students could congregate as they went into the building and had these testing procedures and checklists done before they entered the building. So there was a lot of cost involved in this. And I mean, in the case of Newark, millions and millions of dollars uh, was spent on this type of uh, safety equipment, personal protective equipment, face masks, I mean, you can't imagine how many face masks are needed to supply 50,000 people between students and staff every day with personal protective equipment. Uh, it's an extensive involvement. Uh, we, we shopped around all over the place to try and buy this stuff. I mean, at the onset, it was difficult to even obtain PPE for, for students and staff. So all of these things come into play, and it, it certainly had an impact on the operation of the school and the cost. The federal funds, I want to ask you about federal funds. Um, federal funds have come into the school districts for, and, and they can be used for emergent capital projects to deal with ventilation, things that are connected. You talked, to, you mentioned them, uh, needs that are, capital needs that are connected with uh, making sure that the schools are safe for students to and faculty to work in during the pandemic uh, with COVID-19. 
Um, has that helped? The ESSER funds certainly helped. We took those funds and, and we upgraded air filters where we could. Uh, we upgraded some of the systems, ultraviolet lights were installed in some of the, the central air handling systems. Various things were done to, to again, a, address the airborne problem with COVID. Uh, but again, it was not enough money to replace systems. Uh, so currently, we looked at other ways to replace some of these systems, and ESIP is one, the Energy Savings Improvement Program. NORC was just, uh, just took out a $100 million bond. It's the largest uh, program on the East Coast that was getting underway as I retired. Uh, the system is now actually being implemented, uh, and that is going to use energy savings to replace a number of these systems that really are long, long overdue for replacement. But it, it's just a dent. It, it, it doesn't cover the needs that have been identified. Now, when I also left, we were doing a new uh, facilities condition index report. So every school we were in, in conjunction with the NJIT and outside engineering firms doing a complete survey of every space in every school to determine what is the current need. Because again, the data we had was about 10 years old. So that's being updated as I speak. And you will have a very, very good idea of what it's going to cost to bring these buildings up to speed. Okay, And you will have a room-by-room room inventory with photographs of every condition in every space and a cost assessment to go with it. So that's underway. Uh, and that should be wrapping up probably in the next several months. And, and the state will have a very good idea in the case of Newark what the cost is going to be or what the need is going to be as far as the current conditions. I have um, just two more questions and then we'll we'll wrap this up. The first is is to either of you, whoever wants to answer this. It's a bit perplexing. It may be a bit perplexing to our listeners to know that the court has very clearly ruled that the state is obligated to make certain that the buildings, the school buildings that children enter every day, especially in our poorest districts, are safe, they're not, they're not overcrowded, they're adequate to deliver a high quality educational program to the kids. And yet we've gone through 20 years where we've, you know, we've gotten maybe, maybe a third of the way and a tremendous unmet need still out there. What's the, and I understand that, you know, Teresa's told us that the lawyers have gone back to the Supreme Court now, they've gone back again in front of the Supreme Court, they've been there once before in the late 2000s and now back in front of the Supreme Court again to force the state, to force the governor and the legislature to actually fulfill that obligation. What's the problem here? Why, why the resistance? What's the political side of this? And can either of you or both of you comment on that? Why, why is it so hard to get them to just do what's right for our kids here? And I would just add to that what, what's always been very interesting to me is the state has never argued the need They've never denied that the need exists. And in fact, you know, they've done report after report and testimony from the legislature admitting that the need exists and analyzing the capacity deficiencies and looking at the age of buildings and the number of square feet that need to be replaced. So there's this universal recognition. And even on in the legislature, most of the legislature and legislators would acknowledge that, yes, we need to put more money into the school construction program, but they just, they can't do it. I don't know if it's the, you know, the money, you know, it's always an issue, obviously, with any political decision, um, but th there's just this like universal agreement that it needs to be done, 
and that these the needs of the school districts are real. And yet it still takes the court to intervene um, to get them to act. And I mean, of course, the politics of this is it applies to, you know, the major bulk of the money applies to 31 urban poor school districts. And do folks, you know, in the state want to pay for projects in school districts that aren't their own? I think that's fundamentally what it comes down to. I think that's a These major issue, Teresa, is, is the politics behind the Rod District versus the Abbott District. And where does the money go? And why should I pay for the schools in the, in the Abbott Districts? I live in suburbia, and, and it's unfair that I pay for that. And this struggle goes back and forth, and your politicians are dead in the middle of it. So that's where a lot of this comes into play. I take it, Teresa, there's, um, there's activists and advocates and parents who uh, go down to Trenton and make the case and, and, and make the demand. Is that right? Yeah, there's a, a group called Healthy Schools Now, which uh, has uh, I think like 40 members at this point that's pressing for this money. They've you know, made calls to the legislature and even the SDA itself in public testimony before the legislature admits this. And in fact, the SDA, you know, about three or four years ago, did a tour of the Abbott districts and had a photo essay basically of all of the problems that exist in districts. So it's not like they were even trying to hide the issue or the problems. Um, so it's like everybody's on the same page, but we still can't get it done. And, and you have a former legislature that just left office that wanted to dismantle the SCA. So there was a lot of politics going back and forth as should we do that? Should we keep the SCA? What do we do? And, and again, that just creates more of an issue here as far as the funding. And um, so my last question really gets to the national level, right? So I was reading, there's now several reports that estimate that the unmet need for school building construction in states across the country is approaching, I don't know, you know, 85, 100 billion or more. Huge problem in states across the country. And, and I also noticed that there was an attempt to get funding for federal funding for school construction as part of the infrastructure bill. And initially when the governor Biden or President Biden proposed the, the Build Back Better bill, the infrastructure bill, it included school facilities as part of the infrastructure that the federal government should provide funding to states to support. And that was taken out. So, so this is also a problem on the national level, is it not? It's a huge, huge problem. I mean, I feel like at least in New Jersey, we have some vehicle to try and make this work, but in most states, they have nothing. And without the federal funding, you know, things will just get worse off. Yeah, I, I, I think I noticed that there, I read also that there are uh, 11 or 12 states that have, that are in the place that we were in when the Supreme Court issued its decision in 1990 that we were talking about, the Abbott II decision, which had no capital support for capital improvements from the state. So in those states like Michigan and other states like that, they're in the same boat that we were in 30, 30 years ago, which is the only way you can improve your school buildings is through local bonds, you know, through raising local property taxes. And as we know in New Jersey, and it's true in Michigan and other states, if you're a poor community, you lack the fiscal capacity to do that without state support. So 
I always call this area the sort of un, the unspoken or the untalked about element of the right to education. Nobody really wants, we always talk about school funding and other issues, but we never talk about capital and the need for capital funding for our buildings to make sure our buildings are safe for kids. So um, any last thoughts either of you want to share? I, I just think we, we shouldn't have a total negative outcome as far as what's been attempted to be done by the state. They've done a tremendous amount of work. There's a lot of very good people that I've worked with over the years. They understand the need, but again, their hands are tied because of fiscal constraints, which are well beyond their pay grade. So they want to do the right thing, but there just isn't the resources necessary to do it. And uh, this struggle back and forth again between the suburban districts and the urban districts, I think plays into this big time and, and we need to solve that problem somehow. I would second that. I think Steve said it very well. Yeah, I think one of the themes we've had in some of the other discussions about various aspects of, uh, of the court's rulings in terms of school funding and preschool and, and other issues and, you know, has been um, the political resistance, the resistance of the elected branches of state of our government in Trenton, legislators and governors to actually step up and be champions for equity, be champions for the education rights for kids and, and have the courage to, to kind of push forward without necessarily having the court involved. And I guess that gets to a theme throughout this episode is that the fight for educational equity and education rights never ends. And at the end of the day, it's a political process. And so we need to get uh, all the folks out there that care about this involved in the political effort to make sure that we hold our legislators and elected representatives accountable. So I want to thank you both for this. It's been an amazing discussion. And uh, we really appreciate your time and your expertise and your insights. So once again, Steve, thanks to you and Teresa as well. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, I hope we accomplish something with these discussions. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about the Education Law Center, their wide-ranging work to protect the rights of children, and New Jersey's history of school funding litigation, please visit ELC's website at www.edlawcenter.org. For more information about Legal One, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org slash legal1nj.